Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of my Friday Five podcast and I am super excited today. Yes, I really am because I'm bringing you the most riveting listen which I am absolutely sure you will find completely fascinating and engrossing as I did. So I recently had the pleasure of meeting up in real life with Eleanor Mills, who is the award-winning editor, journalist, writer and broadcaster. Now, she worked for the Sunday Times for 23 years as its editorial director. She was editor of the Sunday Times magazine, a best-selling award-winning editor at that. She was a columnist and interviewer, interrogating everyone from Sheryl Sandberg to Theresa May. And she is a fierce advocate of women in the industry and was chair of Women in Journalism between 2014 and 2021. Now she is working on her first novel and has launched a very exciting platform for midlife women called Noon. And she believes midlife is the age of opportunity and she set up the online community to help women embrace their next act, acknowledging that change is difficult, but it can also be energising and exciting. Well, we have heaps to get through in today's interview. We'll be learning more about Eleanor's midlife philosophy and the personal experiences that shape her work at noon. And those that heard the fascinating episode I recorded recently with Professor David Nutt will also be pleased to hear that we are returning to the topic of magic mushrooms and the role that psychedelics may one day play in mental health treatments. Now, Eleanor has been out to Jamaica to try these mushrooms in a therapeutic setting for herself. And she has a fascinating tale or two to tell about her experiences. It really is quite a listen. So, Eleanor, a very warm welcome. I can't tell you how much I have been looking forward to having this conversation because I just know it's going to go in all sorts of different directions. So, welcome. Oh, thank you. I've really been looking forward to it too. Uh, Well, we're going to come on and talk about your midlife transition, I think, in a few moments. But for those listeners who aren't familiar with your work, can you just share a little bit about your background and your extraordinary career to date? Uh, well, yes, I suppose I'm a recovering hack. Um, I, was a, I was a journalist. Uh, well, I am a journalist. Uh, I worked for the Sunday Times for 25 years. Uh, I was an interviewer, a columnist, um, feature writer. I edit, ended up um, 
I was the Saturday editor of the Times. I edited the Sunday Times magazine for seven years. I was the only editor in its history to win editor of the year. Um, I was editorial director of the Sunday Times. Basically, I've been a news newspaper woman uh, for a quarter of a century. I am in awe and I kind of almost feel I ought to cut this interview short now because I'm now I'm going to be failing against no. such a extraordinary experience and, and knowledge but it's really just such a treat to have you here and let's go back just to I guess in recent history because lockdown brought lots of change for all of us and for you especially can you talk a little bit about your experience yeah, well, just before lockdown, um, I was summoned in to the new editor of the Sunday Times office and basically told that uh, my services were no longer required, which was quite a massive shock to the system. I mean, anyone who knows what it's like to do one of those massive jobs where your whole life really um, is about work. I mean, I've got kids and family and, you know, that's all brilliant, but I've been pretty work focused for my entire time as a journalist. And it's a very kind of compelling thing. So to suddenly discover that all of that has gone, it was a bit like a kind of bereavement in a way. Um, it yeah. was a massive shock. I can remember just that real thing of the world completely stopping and slowing down and having an out-of-body experience and kind of being up on the wall, mm. kind of looking down and thinking to myself, I will not cry. And and just thinking, every, you know, everything's going to be different from, from this day forward. Um, so yeah, it was a really huge transition and it really made me think. So of course, as these things happened, um, I think often in midlife, people get these kind of huge moments, whether that's divorce, bereavement, redundancy, a parent dying, you know, all the, all, all the different things, teenagers coming to bits. I mean, there's so many things that can hit us in midlife ill health, but there are these moments where you know that there is, there was a past and now there is a future and there isn't any kind of crossover between the, between the two anymore. And that you've got to move forward into a different life. And I really had that moment. And what I discovered when I looked around being a journalist, I was Googling, you know, redundancy, next steps. And I just couldn't find anything that was helpful about how I would go about finding my next chapter. So I've always been a bit of a believer in the Obama um, thing that you need to be the change that you want to see in the world. So I set up mm. a, I set up the platform that I'd wanted at that moment, uh, which was to all about helping people in midlife with transitions, find their next chapter, move into the next thing. So I set up a, a new platform for women in midlife called Noon, as in the middle of the day, www.noon.org.uk. And that is all about showing people how you go from one kind of life to another and really looking at the nitty gritty of those steps. I wanted it to be like Hansel and Gretel um, with the pebbles coming out of the wood, really showing your way out of the dark forest. And so it has lots of inspirational stories about people who've um, been in that dark place and found a way out of it. Lots of expert advice. Um, it's basically I designed the thing that I wanted in that moment of crisis and which I couldn't find. Amazing. And that's what so many entrepreneurs and brand founders, of course, do. How quickly did you personally find your way out of that dark forest? It's one of those really strange things that sometimes we bring upon ourselves the change that we don't necessarily even know that we need when we kind of call it in. And, and actually a few... I think I'd had that really kind of itchy, weird feeling for a while that I needed to do something else. Um, newspapers are massively exciting. The news agenda is all encompassing. But I just had a sense that mm. I'd been doing the same thing for too long and that at some deep level, I really needed a change. And I think that those kind of big jobs really wear you out 
um, I've been living on adrenaline, basically, and nerves and stress for 25 years. Um, I'm a person of considerable energy. I'm very nosy. Um, I always think I have a right to kind of know what's going on. Um, I'm quite jigger-like. So I kind of had lived off that for a long time. But I think I was getting quite depleted in my really kind of inner self. And it really was time for a change. And a few months before I was told that I was leaving the Sunday Times, I kind of called that in. Um, but that didn't necessarily make the immediate aftermath of being told that I was being made redundant um, any better. I felt yes. hugely sad, rejected. I had a huge identity crisis. Yeah. Um, I kept getting emails from people going, you've been such a brilliant editor. Um, do you remember this, this and this? It was like reading my obituary over and over again <laughs> in a professional sense. Um, and then, of yes. course, it was lockdown. So we all went from traveling at 100 miles an hour to sitting kind of in our bedrooms at home um so for me I felt a bit like an octopus with eight arms I was so used to juggling and running so many things at once and my brain racing and suddenly I'd had all these arms and and not really anything to do um so that was that was pretty weird but I had already had this idea to do noon or to do to run some retreats and to do some stuff for women in midlife um and so I kind mm. of plunged into that and I also started doing I've always wanted to write a novel so I've also been writing a novel which is also about these kinds of um transitions and transformations wonderful with one of your many eight arms or tentacles <laughs> now you described midlife women as queen ages which I think is the most fabulous expression I hope that we will all start to adopt this why queen Teenagers. I mean, I think it's the most marvellous term, but what what for you is it is sums up a queenager? Well, I think everything that I'm trying to do at Noon is about being optimistic about where we are in midlife as women. Um, as a media professional, I was also chair of women in journalism for seven years. I've been really interested in what I call the male lens, which the media kind of puts on our society. So if you have yeah. a whole load of senior white blokes basically making the decisions about what stories go in the paper and what the angles are, women are always seeing themselves through a particular prism. So if you think about, say, um, Nicola Sturgeon and Theresa May when they met in Scotland, the Daily Mail headline on it was, wasn't the two most powerful women in the country, politicians, meet each other. It was, forget about Brexit, it's all about Legxit, who's got the best legs. And that for <laughs> oh me, yeah, that, for, that was the front page of the Daily Mail that after they met one day in Scotland. And that for me completely sums up the male lens. So it's basically only yeah. looking at women through men's eyes. So, and part of that is what I call gender ageism, which is where ageism meets sexism, which is about women being valued when they're kind of younger and fecund and fanciable. And particularly in the workplace, as they become less pleasing, both kind of, you know, in some ways physically, but also I think we get to a point where we give less of a stuff about what people think about <laughs> us and we're not prepared to pander to senior male egos in quite the same way. So I think the collision of those two kinds of less pleasingness um, can cause <laughs> can cause issues for women. And I think it's really important that as a society, we really value the later stages of women's lives. That's what Noon is all about. Mm. And it's all about, and the point about the Queenager was for me, it was really celebratory of this moment in our lives. There's a wonderful um, phrase about autumn queens talking about women's sexuality as they get older and that we move into a kind of different kind of phase of sexuality uh, which is about kind of reverence and being kind of um, really appreciated and praised and I love that autumn queens idea and the queen ager I think again midlife is a time of 
uh, transition, hormonal, a bit like teenagers, but we're queens. We're moving into our prime. We're coming into our power. So I just thought Queenager really summed that all of that up. And as a journalist, I love a strap line. You know, I've always been a great one for things like too posh to push or whatever it is that kind of sums up the zeitgeist at that moment. So for me, a Queenager just sounded like a brilliant headline. And of course, The Telegraph loved it. And I, I wrote a post about it on LinkedIn, which has had about 150,000 views. It just keeps on giving. I'm not surprised. It is absolutely genius. And I love that idea that women are revered and celebrated and enjoyed in later life, you know, particularly in mm. terms of their sexuality. I think, you know, you, women can often fall into the trap of thinking that they're, they're past it. Um, and actually, a lot of what we do here at Liz Our Wellbeing actually is about midlife women and about empowering and inspiring. Yeah, well, I, I, I really love... I absolutely love what you do, Les. I've always been a huge fan of it. And I think that the more we can drip into the culture that women are not done when they're 50 or when they, you know, had their kids or when they're menopausal, it's when we move into our power. It's when we move into our next phase, our legacy, our purpose. That's really important. I think it's really important for all the women coming up behind us. Mm -hmm. I've got teenage daughters. I really want them to look forward to midlife mm, as the time okay. when they become the women that they're supposed to be. I want them to really look forward to this point, not to spend their time fearing kind of getting wrinkles. I hate the narrative in our society which says men age like good wine. You know, they kind of get better with age, whereas women are seen as peaches, one wrinkle and you're out. I mean, I, for me, that's one of the real last bastions of feminism that we really need to challenge because yeah. it's so important for all of us. Definitely. And I think a lot of midlife women listening to this, perhaps after a career, maybe a partner and children, you know, women can reach their 50s and just sit back and think, well, what's next? So what would your advice be to those who are in the, the middle of this potential change and often confusion? It is really confusing. It's really um, emotional. Um, the most the, the most helpful thing that anyone said to me when I was really in the doldrums of that transition was that change is difficult. Um, and uh, just saying that actually gives me a real shiver. It was it was amazingly calming and helpful thing to be told. So many people when you're going through a bad time go, you know, don't worry, you know, you know, it'll be uh, fine. <laughs> it'll be fine. Get yourself back on the horse. You always bounce back. You know, you'll be you'll be great. This will be the making of you. And actually, when you're feeling really low and battered and sad, being told that you're just going to power through it is the worst thing that anyone can possibly say to you. And this lovely Qigong teacher, I started doing some Qigong and some meditation, said to me, with massive compassion, change is difficult. And that just allowed me to forgive myself for finding it so hard I think particularly those of us who drive ourselves um, quite hard and are used to being quite successful and achieving when think when you hit a bit of a rut that can feel you can feel like such a failure and all your kind of systems are going you know must try harder must try harder and actually I found that the most important thing in this transition is just being quite gentle on yourself but having some self-compassion one of my teenagers said to me one day I was really upset and they just went mum just, you know, calm down. Let's watch some telly. They made me a kind of cup of tea. We sat outside on the balcony in the sun. They were like, let's just, you know, have a bit of a cry. Let's watch a rom-com. It's, oh, it's, it's going to be okay. You know, the kind of things that I say to them if they're sad. And it's very funny as a mum when you get your behaviour modelled back to you by your teenagers when you're being so unkind to yourself. Yes. Um, so that was a really, that was actually a really sweet moment. And and one one of the things that came out of that was really learning that, that vulnerability, particularly when you've been quite high powered, that when you really sit and you go, 
I'm really not in a good way. I feel really sad. I don't know who I am at the moment. Um, it's like it's like a kind of depth charge. People say this to me about divorce as well. That it's like a kind of depth charge, which just goes keeps going on and on and on through your life. It kind of brings up any insecurity you've ever yeah. had. It just kind of keeps exploding down and down and down and down and down. So that's kind of what it what it felt like. And for me embracing some stillness and some silence and some self-compassion really leaning into the people that I love and I know love me my co-founder actually on my business said to me you know spend time with people spend time with people you love and my little daughter gave me a, a sign which said um spend time with people who feel like sunshine oh. which I really loved so it's and I think it's quite interesting when you're a bit vulnerable um how kind people can be Mm -hmm. um which is not necessarily what you expect and you suddenly find that all the kind of love and kindness that you've given out kind of comes back to you in spades and that lots of people that you didn't really expect can be really really sweet and then other people of course that you expect will be there for you really aren't so it's a kind of it's a great kind of shakeout of I think of friends and also you really realize who's there for you in your life I think that's a very interesting way of looking at it and that will resonate, well, resonates with me and I'm sure with many. Mm. What do you see now in your own future? Oh, Liz, I, I don't know. Uh, well, what I'd like is for Noon to become the platform for women in midlife kind of globally. Um, everyone says about female entrepreneurs, they're not ambitious enough. Um, I'm really ambitious <laughs> yeah. for this because I think that we're a pioneering generation. There's never been a generation of women like us who've worked all the way through hitting um, 50 and hitting midlife. We're not prepared to put up with treatment, the treatment and stuff that our mothers have had for menopause. Yes. We're not prepared to go quietly into that good luck, good night we've got more we own more wealth than any generation of women ever because we've all worked um so no i i feel like i'm revving up for my next act in a big way and i feel really excited about it and i absolutely love running my own show i mean as you know it's often a bit of a roller coaster um oh. and and every day I, you, you kind of see something which you think can be the answer and it's going to be the way through and then something that you thought was going to be the answer maybe doesn't work out. But I'm, I'm loving the sense of windows opening kind of all the time and it's a bit like being in a maze and thinking, where am I going next? But I'm, I'm really loving the entrepreneurial journey. I think that's incredibly empowering for a lot of people listening because you're right, our generation differs hugely, doesn't it, from previous ones in terms of how we're seeing and approaching later life, how we're living, what's expected of us. You know, I think my my 50s are vastly different to those of my mother and her generation. And hopefully we are trailblazing. You know, I've, I've got young daughters as well and we are setting the scene for them as well and setting the tone and changing the narrative in a way that is really revolutionary. I think if you look back historically at how women have been treated, you don't have to go back very far to really see such an enormous difference. I mean, we, this is really something to be celebrated, isn't it? I know we haven't come far enough, but it's 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 pretty good if you look at it in a, through a positive lens. Well, I think so. I've always been a, a glass half, you know, a glass half full girl. And um, I think that we're at a really revolutionary moment. And I think that this thing around the later stages of women's lives is a real final frontier. Um, I think it's incredibly important. And that's why I think calling us queen ages, which I think gets across that sense of moving into our power. And you're totally right that we are a pioneering generation. It's not just me saying that. It's true. You see it in the statistics. We've just done a huge piece of research 
research um, at noon, the biggest biggest study so far into women 45 to 60, um, which is which we've called the rise of the queen ager. We did it with Accenture. And that really shows kind of when you when you really dig into the facts that this is a pioneering generation. One of my favorite statistics is in 2019, women over 40 started earning more money than women under 40 for the first time in history. Wow. And that's because women's incomes used to peak before they had children. And now so many of us have gone on working or haven't had kids um, that we've gone on being economic powerhouses kind of into our 40s and beyond. And that means that we do have financial clout in a way that women at this point didn't used to have. And that gives us the power to an agency over our lives to reshape them in the way that we want to. And I think the more of us talk about this and enact it, uh, the more other women will see that that's possible and they won't be handicapped or to have their um, vision narrowed by the male lens, which says to women that they're done, that they're on the scrap heap when they hit 50. This is what I'm really trying to challenge. Amazing. And I am now really keen to come on to the other extraordinary <laughs> topic of today, which is magic mushrooms, um, because I am so thrilled to say that you've just written the most brilliant long read for our May magazine, which will be out shortly. And I know that you went out to Jamaica to try the mushrooms for yourself. <laughs> I, I did. So I was at that point. Why? Why make that decision? Okay, well, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a saga. So I'll tell you the story. So, um, I was the editor of the Sunday Times magazine at that point, and the editorial director and all that stuff. And one of my writers, brilliant writer, probably one of the best interviewers of her generation, um, is a lady called Decca Aikenhead. Some of you may know Decca's story. She's wrote a book about it. But she, her husband, drowned um, in front of her and her two sons um, in Jamaica about eight years ago. Uh, it was absolute tragedy. The boys were like three and one, um, and he drowned rescuing um, one of the boys who was in the shallows and got pulled out in a riptide and he died in front of them and Decker basically and then a year after he died so she was dealing with all of that he she then got cancer really terrible breast cancer had to have oh. a double mastectomy and nearly died um, and then was and had no money for various kind of things so she was having to work to support them all and she'd had a really really terrible time and she'd survived she's an incredible woman I love her so much and she came to me we, we, we became friends actually when she began to work for me at the Sunday Times I headhunted her because I thought she was so brilliant and she came to me and she said Els, I I can't feel anything. She'd been in survival mode for so long. She just said, you know, I can't feel happy. I can't feel sad. I don't feel anything. And all lots of the research around psilocybin, magic mushrooms, coming out of America, John Hopkins University and Imperial College, Univers Imperial College London, says that taking some big doses of psilocybin can really help with post-traumatic stress disorder and with addiction and with anything which is about where the brain has got into a particularly stuck groove on something. So things like anorexia, um, addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, anxiety. There's quite a lot of evidence now which shows that um, some therapeutic doses of psilocybin in a very given in a very, very controlled context, which we'll come on to, can be really helpful in shifting people's um, patterns of thinking. And so Decker said that um, 
she spends a lot of time in Jamaica and she said to me that in Jamaica um, magic mushrooms are legal in the UK they're illegal so we should we should stress that but in in Jamaica um, magic mushrooms are are not illegal they were never made illegal so it's a slightly kind of grey area on the law and they are running um, quite a few magic mushroom retreats out there and Decca because um, she goes to Jamaica a lot knew somebody who was running one of these retreats and he'd said would she like to come so she came to me and she said I think it would make an amazing article for the Sunday times magazine which it did (laughs) and that she really wanted to go and do it and I looked at her and I said I think it's a great idea but if you're going to go and do it I think uh, as your editor I have a duty of care I'm going to come with you and and as a friend um I also quite fancied it myself um and and so we set off for Jamaica it was quite an interesting conversation I had with the managing editor about the kind of risk and whether we were both going to come back from (laughs) come from Jamaica back from Jamaica in a kind of padded cell having lost our marbles completely I mean that did go through my mind um so we set off to for jamaica and we went on this magic mushroom retreat so this is about three um three or four months um it was in the the december before i left the sunday times at the beginning of lockdown in march so and when i when we got out there we took so we you took the mushrooms um i was kind of really going there as a support for her i hadn't really thought about the effect it would have on my own life but i actually think it was the seed of everything that I've done since everything that I talk about in terms of transformation and transition I think began on that retreat so the way that it works we went and stayed in this beautiful Jamaican um, villa kind of above the sea just to set the scene turquoise sea most beautiful gardens full of palm trees and tropical flowers and um, swimming pools and below the sea kind of lapping against the the cliffs and this beautiful white beach and it was really pretty paradisical um, and throbbing with life beautiful tropical kind of life just chugging through everything and you get you get given um you take three doses of psilocybin um over the week so you, you have a dose then you have a day off you have a dose you have a day off you have a dose you have a day off and there were about eight other people um also on the retreat mostly men actually aged between about 55 and 65 um the majority of them extreme high flyers it was quite a high-end um retreat they were charging like ten thousand us dollars for the week mm. so these were kind of big um kind of silicon valley players and really really real load of quite successful kind of american men but they were it was really interesting they all felt like they'd ticked all the boxes that they would had been told by in their life that they were supposed to tick in order to kind of be successful and happy and they were all so unhappy liz it was amazing there was one guy who was there he was suing his business partner he was suing his wife he was in the middle of a massive divorce he was so bitter and closed up and a lot of them were and what we saw over the week was just how the psilocybin sounds really naff but kind of cracked their cracked their hearts open it kind of allowed them to feel again it was as if they were so stuck on that hamster wheel of success and accumulation and outside baubles that they'd forgotten how to feel they'd forgotten that actually what makes us happy is being in touch with the capacity to love you know and to feel joy and to feel kind of open to the wonders of the world um and that's really what the psilocybin um does i mean it's quite it's not for the faint-hearted um <laughs> i might say um and you do when you get there you sign so many bits of paper basically saying you know anything that happens 
you know it's not it's not their fault you, that you, you're doing all of this to yourself <laughs> no liability um, whatsoever <laughs> no exactly there's there's one rule on the retreat which is don't leave um really? under any circumstances yeah that you can't leave particularly while you're off your head and you get um babysat they have some people they really? call trips trip sitters like babysitting but trip sitting um what? who are also known as psychedelic ninjas so there's a whole kind of load of staff there were always almost as many um kind of therapists and uh, people supporting us trip sitters um as there were people on the retreat it was kind of almost one-to-one ratio which is interesting. Um, so, so, so talk us through it. So you get there. How, how do you take <laughs> magic mushrooms? Is it a powder? Is it a pill? Physically, what happens? Um, well, you can take them fresh and they look like big field mushrooms. Um, but mostly what they do is they dry them up and then they put them into capsules, which look a bit like vitamins or something. And you, you're, you're advised to munch them because it, it helps the absorption. So you have to kind of chew these really dry capsules, which taste a bit kind of earthy. And it helps it, you have, you get given a bit of dark chocolate to help you take and get them down. Um, and we started off by taking, how many, I think I took five grams of psilocybin to begin with, which is quite and, a lot. And how quickly did you feel different and what did you feel? So, so you take, so that, to, so there's there's a lot of preparation. So the whole point about taking psilocybin is it's not like taking aspirin. It's all about what they call set and setting. So you, we, for the first day, it was lots of integration. So we all got to know each other. There was a circle. Everybody, anyone who's been on a retreat will know about this. So you have to explain kind of why you're there, what your issues are, kind of why, what you're trying to kind of work out. So I think that part of the effect of the retreat were these incredibly honest sharing conversations because you're there with a whole group of strangers nobody you know there's no everybody's there because they've got something that they want to shift and people were incredibly honest I don't think I've ever seen such amazing conversations in my whole life um so that so you start off with this really intense sharing circle and then on the day the, the day of the dose um you don't eat very much breakfast you have to have quite an empty stomach and you chew the you and you do a, a meditation beforehand so the first meditation was about being able to envisage the kind of white light above above your head and being able to take that white light all the way down through your body so that if you get into a point with the mushrooms where it feels a bit dark and scary, you can go back to that sense of being filled with white light. So we did this lovely meditation to begin with. Um, then we all took the mushrooms and then you go and lie. I went and lay in a hammock, actually, down by the sea. And there were about three other people who were taking mushrooms. They split us into two groups. About three other people also kind of in hammocks or um, on, on kind of sun lounges and you lie there and to begin with you feel you can feel a bit nauseous it feels quite heavy on your stomach and your whole body kind of goes a bit tingly um and you're a bit worried you're a bit like am I about sure. to go completely yeah because yeah. you've got no sense of what's going to happen or what no. it's going to be like and we've all got kind of visions of what tripping is I was always really scared of taking acid or anything when I was a student um I never I never really fancied it because there were so many horror stories about people mm. thinking they could fly and jumping out of windows so I've always been quite scared of acid um I've taken I've taken some magic mushrooms in in this country you know back back in my in my youth we used to pick them on the hillside near our house and take them but not 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 like this not not so not yeah. so not so strong and when you know that you're taking them for a kind of therapeutic they call they talk about it as journeying so you're taking something which is taking you on a very intense 
inner journey to kind of work through trauma so so you're so you're lying there you begin to you begin to kind of feel you become very aware of um the kind of pulses inside your own body so if your heartbeat of the blood kind of um chunking through your veins um of insects kind of chirping around you the sound of the sea everything becomes um all your senses are super kind of tuned so everything becomes very intense and then I remember lying in the hammock and looking up and thinking, crikey, the whole, it looked like the whole world was shifting on its axis. Not just that the, the leaves of the trees, um, the branches were swaying, but that everything was like swinging back and forwards in slow motion, the land, the, the tree, the sea, everything. So that was a bit weird. Um, and, and then I just began to feel full of a totally tingly sense of joy and connection. I remember getting out of my hammock and I had some Bob Marley on my um, earplugs. I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a cliche. And I was looking at the sunshine and the kind of light on the sea and the waves breaking. And I just became filled with an amazing sense of joy and wonder and connection with the world. And I was thinking about all the people that I loved and who loved me and just this wonderful sense of kind of connection and kind of happiness and my whole body kind of feeling kind of fizzy with that. That was the first, that was my first experience. Um, that I mean, that wasn't true of everyone. So poor Decca, her first experience was absolutely dreadful. She felt like she was back on chemotherapy and in a really dark place oh and felt it more nauseous and awful than she'd ever felt in her life and was kind of stuck in this darkness and everything was black and white and she couldn't get out of it. Um, one of the guys near me was like pouring the sand like a kind of demented dinosaur, which is quite strange. Um, there were people, some people kind of shouting and yelling. And so you never, you never quite know what you're going into. I mean, for me, it was a bit like, I, I kind of got, th I kind of went into the first one when I gave birth both times, I had did a lot of yogic breathing and had this amazing sense of, I wonder if other women can relate to this. There's a kind of hippie term for it about um, being on the astral portal when you give birth, that you're kind of between worlds. You're kind of in that very liminal space where the membrane of reality becomes quite thin. Um, and that's where the mushrooms put you. So everything, all the connections, I and mean, the neuroscientists describe it as usually by the time we get to midlife we've got lots of patterns in our brain our brain basically goes around the same circuits all the time mm -hmm. and that when you take psilocybin it enables different kinds of connections to be made kind of in your skull and you can see that when they've done brain scans of people under psilocybin and you can see all these kind of rainbow connections happening within the brain because it turns off the planning um kind of that the sergeant major that we all have at the front of our head, which is saying, do this, do that, you know, the, what's called the default mode network, that gets turned off. So therefore, other, lots of other connections in the brain can happen. So you can get kind of synesthesia where you feel like you can see sounds um, mm -hmm. and all the kind of senses merge together. And then I remember going for, um, I remember one of the really bad things about when you're, when you're on um, a very big um, dose of psilocybin is you have to pee, you know, you're still, because you, it goes on for hours and sometimes you have to get up and you have to go and have pee and you're so your brain is so fumble fumble that that's quite that's quite a challenge to actually get yourself together to kind of go and have pee and I was peeing behind a rock and I remember looking down and seeing all these incredible 
pink flowers from the bougainvillea and it looked like they were kind of swirling around the sand like they were moving I'd never seen anything so amazing or so beautiful so it really it really um takes you into a world of wonder a bit like a child you know if you think of a two-year-old kind of sitting in the garden kind of playing with petals or with mud or something the intensity of that kind of concentration and experience it kind of takes you back to to a, a feeling that the world is born new and you're seeing it all for the first time millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And was each of the three experiences similar or did they build or did you have any dark moments? And I'd love to know that Decker's experiences got better. Yeah, no, Decker's experiences did get better. I mean, we were really worried and the poor people who were running the retreat were really worried that, that having had this terrible first experience, she, was, she wouldn't do any more, that that would be it, particularly because she was writing about it. So it was all very well me kind of going, oh, I'm full of bliss. But um, in terms of the peace for them, <laughs> it was not great that she was having such a bad time. And I think incredibly bravely, she did take another dose um, two days later, but she did it. She took it with me and with the guy who ran the retreat and the three of us did it together, um, which is actually quite unusual in those retreats. Most people have quite a kind of solo experience. And we had one of the best days of my entire life. I never felt so high, so happy. Um, We laughed so much. I remember we were lying under these trees listening to some music and, um, Decker said Decker was looking around she's going oh this isn't so bad and I was like and I laughed and she said when's the apocalypse going to show up and and uh, me and the guy who was running the retreat we just laughed so much and then she was laughing too and we were just in this state of total ecstatic hilarity um for ages and it was it was it was incredible and then there are dark moments some dogs came into the garden and I remember seeing them like a pack of 
terrifying hounds. Um, and so because everything, because the membranes are thin, because all your defenses are down, anything, that's why the set and setting and being looked after is so important because mm. you can't deal anything that starts kind of going wrong or feeling scary. You can instantly kind of flip over into something which is really not okay. Um, no. So that's why I say, you know, do, do not try this at home. Um, no. And there are moments, it's like you see yourself in 360 Liz it's like you kind of are suddenly given a mirror up to yourself all the way around and you start to realize things that you maybe you don't need to do anymore I had a real mm -hmm. sense on that second day of um everything being enough that I didn't need anything people kept offering me kind of water or cigarettes or things like that and I just had a sense that I was completely replete that I had absolutely everything that I needed that was a, and that, that really stayed with me um and then we decker and i both also had a real revelation on the moment when the dogs came into the garden because it was not our responsibility and for both of us where we, we, were, we were kind of you know ladies with big jobs and children and so much responsibility so we came up with this whole phrase about what we called not our dogs we, you know right. it wasn't our dogs it wasn't our responsibility and we still use that phrase a lot together really? go, not our dogs yeah <laughs> meaning not 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 our problem yeah. and so that was interesting that it was we were also taking a holiday from our own kind of burdens and it made us really see those I think um afresh um and I I had some trauma in my childhood my parents divorced when I was five and I had I think I had a lot of sadness from that so I also had a sense during this very hilarious day on the Tuesday on the on the second trip of taking my childhood self that that was the meditation we did before we went into it um was to, to kind of think of your childhood self and I had the sense of taking my rather sad five-year-old self and tucking her kind of under my arm or kind of into my heart and saying it's all going to be all right and then having this ecstatic kind of very childish silly day I was played I was a jack-in-the-box for quite a lot of it I kept kind of jumping up and down and people who know me I've got very crazy curly hair which had gone mad so I was being a kind of jack-in-the-box and kind of leaping around the place and it was just very fun to get back into a state of totally childish silliness. So um, did most people find then that perhaps by the third trip that they resolved or at least addressed some of the trauma that that had come out and then there was a space left for for some joy and some happiness so that you kind of end on a on a high is 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 that the kind of the pattern the way it works um i think a lot of i think where i was slightly different from so quite a lot of the other people on the trip um liz is that i hadn't really gone there to work through any kind of massive trauma whereas for a lot of people they'd gone there because um, well there was one guy who was there who I, who I write about in the article I've written for you who was literally like a kind of white corpse I've never seen anybody alive look so lifeless he was totally white he couldn't meet your eye he was there and he was saying that if he if it didn't work he was going to kill himself so there were a lot of people there who were in quite a bad way for whom going to do this was the last throw of the dice mm -hmm. so I think for them they had quite a lot of stuff to to wade through um I think even if he didn't have I, I mean I didn't really think I had that much baggage but I I certainly unearthed a lot of stuff about myself and for the on the last day um they did a meditation in the morning where they said take everything you no longer need in your life and put it in a box and throw it off a cliff or blow it up with a golden beam from your heart. Mm. Um, and in that moment, I put 
my entire life at the Sunday Times, my whole journalistic wow. career wow. in that box. <laughs> and I blew it up with this golden beam of light from my from my heart. And Liz, I felt so good. I felt <laughs> amazing. I felt so light. Oh. I felt, just thinking about it now, gives me shivers. I, um, I felt so light. I felt so happy. I felt so free. I felt like... I don't know, I felt really newborn. And then I had this incredible trip on the last day where I literally felt like I'd melted. I was telling you about this when we, we talked before. Yeah. I literally felt like I'd melted into a kind of pot of celestial cream is the best way mm. to describe it. That I was, yeah, you say, mm, I did. I just lay there for an hour just going, mm, to myself <laughs> under this palm tree, just feeling mm. like I was, I just dissolved into the universe, that I was being completely recharged with this completely golden energy this incredible golden light and all the way through my intense sadness when I left the Sunday Times I had this sense of this golden light um, guiding me through mm. and it was in that moment of the golden light that I realized that actually really what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing was helping people get to that point themselves and really kind of feeling that transformation and yes. um, understanding it or understanding that they could be connected and joyful in that way um, and I kind of left there thinking that that's what I want to do. I mean, that's not to say that when I was actually made redundant from the Sunday Times, it felt um, good. It didn't. It felt absolutely horrific. Mm. <laughs> and I had a whole load of, you know, all the depth charge stuff that I had to work through, a lot of which was around the nature of success. And those of us who are very driven are usually pretty driven for a reason, you know, that we've been really programmed to do a certain thing with our lives. And then when that kind of comes to an end, then you're like, well, I've done all this stuff. But who am I? What for me? It was like I've done all this stuff. My parents were very achievement focused, mm. um, and I kind of realised that I'd been doing a lot of that very high profile kind of achievement focused stuff, kind of for for them rather than for me. And mm -hmm. that what I wanted had kind of got lost a bit along the way. And I think that happens to so many of us in midlife. Yeah. Um, and what the psilocybin experience did for me was it it kind of reawoke my I think my true self or my true purpose, my sense of my own legacy and what really mattered to me. And that's kind of the path that I've been on um, ever since. And I think that without the psilocybin, without that moment of really thinking, actually, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I need I need a new chapter in my life. And the, the, the process of moving from one thing to another, as we touched on earlier, is really painful. I describe it as like being pruned, you know, like you're a rose bush or something, which is being really cut back to its essence. But I think what it then allows you to do is to is to regrow with that real green essence of kind of shooting life force uh which you take into your next which you take into your next chapter mm. so i th and I, what i've seen at noon on our retreats and with so many of the women that i talk to is that so many of us have that moment in midlife whether it's a redundancy a divorce um somebody dying uh, your children leaving home um recover having an illness and kind of getting through it or just that sense that life is short and precious and we haven't got time to be living any life which isn't the one that we really choose and love and which is enacting our purpose yeah. that was what it felt like for me it was like a kind of bit of a wake-up call it was like right come on which we've shown you something great how do you shine that light out into the world that sounds like a kind of big thing to say but that's really kind of how I feel about what I'm doing I feel very certain now that mm. I'm on the 
right path and that I'm doing something that really matters. So do you think that the psilocybin has played an integral part in that? Do you think that you came away with a long lasting effect? I do. And I, I tell you what, ever since then, I've meditated. Actually, not, no, no, that's not fair. Not since the psilocybin retreat. Since I left the Sunday Times and um, was in this real kind of dark hole. Um, so I basically left the Sunday Times. I was really sad. I then got COVID right Ugh. in 2020 when Boris had it, you know, right at the yes. beginning which was really scary time to have it because people were dying, you know, dying yeah. all over it and you didn't know if you were going to end up in hospital. And yeah. so I spent about three weeks in bed with COVID and quite a dark place. And I listened to a lot of Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. Mm. Um, and ever since I've, ever since that combination of the Eckhart Tolle and the psilocybin, I now meditate every morning. Mm. And the place that I go back to is that golden place of connection of falling into the kind of celestial the less the celestial extra and feeling connected to everything and recharged and I can summon that place and I feel that that has gone on there's an amazing phrase in Wordsworth I, I was an English graduate which is oh, there are in our existence spots of time that retain a vivifying virtue which mean that there are spots of time that we have which go on expanding within our consciousness which go on really by vivifying he means which go on giving life um mm-hmm. in its most essential way um after the event and that's what a lot of Wordsworth's poetry is about it's about you know like amazing beauty recollected and tranquility but it's also about these moments which stretch the mind which make us see that things can be different and I do think that psilocybin does that and I've done it since and I've had other every time you do it you come away with some kind of sense or perception about the world that you didn't have before Mm. um I had a sense of uh being a seed that was quite fun it was a seed and um being in this incredible green light um which was growing the seed underground um and just very 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 prophetic then with noon hopefully yeah well hopefully I mean I've, I've, I've you kind of feel you know, I don't want to get too too kind of new age on you because I'm really not, and I'm and as you know, I'm a very rational kind of um, yes. cynical journalist. So it's mm. kind of this is the, this is the first time I've ever talked about um, any of this. Really, this I wrote a bit mm. about it for you in the piece, but mm. I think I've gone further mm. um, on talking about this. And actually, this is very much the subject of my novel. Mm. It's all about <laughs> it's about these experiences and about transformation and really about what that means. And I think that transformation comes from beginning to be able to see your own blind spots mm-hmm. you know that, that you must have had that too where you just get a sense of oh that's what I've been doing oh definitely and I'm 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 really intrigued obviously to hear your experience and and to to think about it and as you know I've interviewed Professor Nutt not that long yeah. ago and his amazing charity Drug Science what are your thoughts now on whether psychedelics will one day be much more widely used therapeutically well, I hope they will be, but I think there's a massive problem with this. So back in the 60s, um, some of the listeners will know about um, Timothy Leary, who was the kind of godfather of acid, who mm. was all kind of tune in, turn on, drop out. And everyone thought in the 60s that psychedelics were going to be the answer. But the problem with psychedelics is they really, they're, they're, I think they're like a truth drug. Um, I use this phrase about them being a kind of Pilates for the soul. Um, and they they will expose anything that you are trying to hide you know any rottenness that is in you anything which is festering anything which is 
you know, it's all the stuff that we need to get rid of, but it's, it's a painful journey. You know, this, the, the taking psilocybin is like a kind of hero's journey. You're really going into the kind of darkest recesses of your psyche. And of course, lots of people are doing it because they need to do that in order to move on. And I think all of us by midlife have got some kind of mental cupboards that need a really good throw out. You know, it's like... Um, <laughs> It's, it's like, um, who's the woman, you know, does this spark joy? You know, it's it's like that yeah. for your kind of innermost soul, your for your spirit. And so it's not, it, it's not for sissies. <laughs> right. And you also, if you've ever had any kind of psychotic um, incidences, um, then it's definitely not for you. Because what it's really doing is pushing, it's pushing the boundaries of where, where our kind of sanity and our kind of reason lies i think or our sense of ourselves or so you, i think at some level you have to feel for me that there were there were things that i've done in my life you know like giving birth twice or um you know some really big experiences i've had where i know that there is a very solid place inside myself that i can get back to um and you certainly need some kind of a sense of an anchoring point when you're um, on the psilocybin and for me that's always come from a really profound sense of appreciation and gratitude mm -hmm. and a kind of thankfulness and for me whenever I'm on the mushrooms and it starts to feel dark if as soon as I think about you know love and that kind of, that kind of green light of kind of love and healing and flow and a sense of synchronicity in the world giving us amazing things and us giving that back that real Lakshmi that that exchange um, then it would always kind of lift me up to a to a higher place. So I think that's quite a good lesson for life, isn't it? That mm -hmm. gratitude, appreciation, love, you know, all the good stuff. That's what oh, yeah. that's what makes us happy. Um, and that's one of the big lessons, I think, from the psilocybin. And it just gives you a sense that all the things that you thought were important or all the things that you've been worrying about actually don't matter at all, that right. we're part of this divine um, kind of golden plan and that everything as exactly as it's supposed to be. I mean, that sounds such a weird thing to say, but that is how it makes you feel. But also, I think it also gives you a sense of the connectedness of the world and ecosystems and a profound sense of what we're all doing to the planet. Some of the people had real um, kind of, you know, a trauma about kind of the earth and about the trees and what, what all the pollution and things was doing to the world because you have, feel that sense of everything being connected. Mm -hmm. um, other people were connected to, like, uh humanity's trauma in a bigger way there's a woman who um was her, her parents had been jews in the fleeing um hitler and she and she kept having mm. these trips where she was on these trains being transported kind of to the to the gulag um which should accept so there is that kind of bit of like that ancestral trauma that comes through yes um and That's for me being exciting. in jamaica there was something very powerful around around slavery mm -hmm. and around britain's mm. kind of um uh, legacy there which was very which was you know very profound so w when you when you kind of take the lid off your mind you find great joy and happiness but also all the darkness is there too so it's kind of everything is there everything is in play but it's almost as if you're given a chance to throw all the pieces up in the air a bit like shaking a snow globe and see where they where they resettle Mm. which is amazingly powerful but also really dangerous um so you, you so the beginning of this question was about um 
will psychedelics become part of the mainstream? I hope so, but only within the context, I think, of of the kind of retreat that, that I did. This is not yeah. something you can take like an aspirin. No. It has to be accompanied by deep therapeutic searching. And it's an experience which goes on unraveling in your mind for a long time afterwards. Mm. Now, I know that you're offering retreats at noon, not exactly yes. the same kind of retreats, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about these and, and I guess, you know, whether they're informed by your time in Jamaica or whether you've taken elements of that within your own retreats. Yes, completely. I mean, you can't offer magic mushrooms in the UK. <laughs> but what I've what I've found is that having had that window into a different where a different um Aldo Saxley talks about the doors of perception, and I think that that's what you're messing around with when you um take psychedelics. Having done that, I now know that I can get back to that golden place through meditation, you know, through qigong, through. Um, things which put you in a state of flow in your own body. You talk a lot about breathing, Liz, and mm. um, and moving and all those kind of things. So you can, once you've felt it, once you've felt where you're going, and also you've stepped into that place of real honesty with yourself about that, that 360 view, I think that you can recreate that for people on a retreat without the mushrooms through using um, things like constellations therapy, very powerful way of tapping into different ways of knowing um, through uh, forest bathing and mindfulness and some we do some very um, intense yin yoga followed by a crystal healing ball, which definitely gets you to a place where you're into that synesthesia and your brain is in a completely different kind of zone. Mm. So what I've tried to do is to mimic all the things which put you into that kind of psilocybin space without taking the psilocybin. Um, and also I think something amazingly powerful is just being with another group of people who are also on a mission to change themselves and move into a new chapter um, over those few days. And actually the, the discussions and the, the openness and the uh, the capacity and the ability and the intention to make yourself vulnerable and to open up to other people and to really allow yourself to explore the things that you've been scared of that is massively powerful i mean i'm sure lots of people will have been watching wim hof on the um uh, on the rate on this bbc one series which i think is absolutely brilliant yeah but it's kind of what he talks about that you can you can step beyond yourself into a place which is you know maybe has been fearful which then makes you realize that you can push yourself much further than you thought um, in lots of different ways. And psilocybin is one way of doing it. But I really feel that on our noon retreats, we do that. And so many of the women who've come have said it has completely changed their life and that they feel kind of transformed by that experience of being very held and vulnerable kind of in a group and being, it's almost like trying out new kinds of ways to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, what a retreat is, that you, you retreat from your normal life for a bit to allow yourself to play with a different version of yourself. And for anybody listening who wants more information on that, where is the best place to go to to find out more? Um, so if you come to our Noon website, www.noon, as in the middle of the day, .org.uk. And we called it Noon because um, in the 100-year life, 50 is only halfway through. So we're only at midday. I agree with you. <laughs> to come. <laughs> so, and I think we're in our prime. Yeah, it's that real yeah. prime spot. I am definitely <laughs> feeling that I'm halfway through and it's all about having a better second half and it's such a joy to have you here and I'm sure that everybody will be really so pleased and delighted to have had the experience of listening to you thank you for sharing so much so openly it's been an absolute pleasure and a pure piece of joy for me so thank you (laughs) 
Oh, well, thank you. It's really kind of you to, um, you know, be interested and support everything that we're doing at noon. And we really, really, really appreciate that support, Liz. And for me, it's all about women supporting other women, particularly in this space and on this journey and trying to push this Queen Ages frontier. So I think us Queen Ages need to stick together. 100%. Thank you. And I'm pleased to say that after that recording, I asked about Decca, and it seems that she is continuing to do well. To quote Eleanor, her pilot light went out and it's now switched back on. Apparently she's starting work again later this year and we all wish her very well indeed for the future. And if you'd like to read more of Eleanor's fascinating experience, she has written the most brilliant article in the latest edition of Lizard Wellbeing magazine, which comes out at the beginning of May. Now, if you're not a subscriber, well, firstly, why not? And secondly, do take a look at the latest subscription offers over on our website, lizardwellbeing.com. There are some truly terrific deals and some free gifts, and it is a great read, all of it, not only Eleanor's piece, but the rest of the magazine as well, thanks to my terrific team of wellness warriors and writers. And also, if you're interested in hearing more about psychedelics, including the fascinating podcast chat on medical cannabis in the UK and beyond, Beyond, do take a listen to my podcast show episode with Professor David Nutt. You will find a link on my website and also in our podcast show archives. Simply search David Nutt and that's spelt N-U-T-T. Now before I go and on the subject of tropical greenery, Okay, that's a bit of a tenuous link, but I wanted to highlight a study that has recently hit the headlines and was brought to my attention by the superb data analyst and health researcher, Dr. Zoe Harkham. And it's a good example of how important it can be to look beyond health-related headlines and take a more discerning look at the data before we draw any hard and fast conclusions about our diet and lifestyle. So the headline in question, which you may have seen, is that eating one avocado a week can cut our heart disease risk by a fifth. Good news, you might think. Here in the UK, this was widely reported. It was in the Daily Mail, the Mirror, the Telegraph and the Independent. But as Zoe has brilliantly outlined in her review of the data, this headline is actually pretty misleading. Here are some of the key flaws she picked out. First, if you take a closer look at the original study, researchers did find a reduction in heart disease in men, but there were no significant results in women. Secondly, while the headlines report that heart disease risk is cut by, quote, a fifth, they don't make this clear that this is relative risk and not absolute risk. In other words, the absolute difference is tiny. The results show that in the group of those who don't eat one avocado a week, an additional six people would develop heart disease in every 10,000 people. So that's a change of 0.06%, much less significant than a fifth suggests. Thirdly, the study failed to account for a significant confounder that has surely skewed the data. That is how wealthy the study participants were. And when it comes to an expensive food like avocado, this is important to take into account because affluent individuals tend to have better outcomes for all sorts of reasons in any case. 
So once you take into account all of these failings, the study and the subsequent headlines look a lot less convincing. Now, this doesn't mean that avocados aren't good for our health. Of course they are. I just wanted to share this as a reminder that media reports about health and nutrition are so often misleading and blown out of proportion because, well, the truth really doesn't sell quite as well. And as Zoe says in her review on the topic, the headline should have been men and only men, consuming at least one avocado a week, are associated with a minuscule heart event difference versus non-avocado consumers. And that's before adjusting for how affluent they are. Not quite so catchy, is it? Well, on that note, I shall love you and leave you. Until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.